0: youth and how life has turned out for them. And so that's what got him thinking about, you know, what's the purpose? What's the meaning? What's the direction of your life? And how do you set that course? Because at his fifth year reunion, everybody was doing well. Uh, they were climbing the social ladder. Their careers were fine. Um, they had married attractive people. They took exotic vacations and that sort of thing. But then at his 10th anniversary reunion, he noticed that some people were not very happy with the way their life has turned out. And it wasn't that, these were all Harvard grads, it wasn't that they didn't have a good job, it was that they weren't happy in their job, or that their relationships had fallen apart. They had been divorced multiple times, and of course there's all sorts of reasons why people get divorced, but they were... F- broken in their relationships and, and uh, estranged, in one case, uh, with their own children. And that got him thinking, again, you know, how do we measure the, our life? What course do we use to set our life by? And then this 25th anniversary, that's what really got him because, again, he encountered uh, some of the people were very happy, but a lot of people were unhappy. And now these folks were at the top of their careers still many of them unhappy, one of them was in jail. Jeffrey Skilling was a classmate of his, and he was um, the Enron CEO. And he said, nobody would have guessed that this would have happened to Jeffrey Skilling if you'd have known him in college and what happened. So what happened to get him off course? And the point of this book was, how do you measure your life? If you understand what life is really all about, you'll set a course for life and then those things that want to derail you, you'll, you'll stay the course when you see those, those side rails come up. And, and, and he gives a lot of wisdom, and some of it's biblical wisdom, although I don't think he's coming from that perspective. But at any rate, I thought that was an intriguing title, an intriguing idea just to look at how people live their life and, and where life heads, uh, different people are heading, and, and where your life is going. But the better question is, how does God measure your life? how does God measure your life and of course I think there'd be some overlap if if you understand how life really works God is the creator of life and and there'd be some overlap for a very wise person looking at how life works and what the essence of it is I think there would be some overlap between how God measures your life but that really should be the question that we ask ourselves because that's who really matters and um, and that's what we see in, in the end of Matthew 25 is that there's going to be a day For God will measure our life. There's going to be a day of judgment that's coming. And it makes sense to chart the course of our life according to His judgment. Jesus is teaching that this is going to happen. Um, And all throughout Matthew 25, the theme has been preparation. Be prepared, disciples. Be ready. This is going to happen. This is judgment day. Now, of course, none of this will really have an impact on us if we don't believe that a final day is coming. But Jesus clearly teaches, and he clearly believes this. He says in verse uh, 31, listen again to what he says, When the Son of Man comes in glory, he's referring to himself, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. A picture of kingly authority and judgment. And often in the ancient world, kingly power and judgment went together. The king was oftentimes the judge. And so we heard it in the passage from Ephesians that God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him above all powers and authorities on earth in this age and in the age to come. And this is a description of the beginning of the end, the beginning of the age to come when the authority and power of Christ will be recognized universally and he'll be seated on his throne of judgment and kingly power. And today is Christ the King Sunday. And that's why we're focusing on that theme. And then, verse 32 before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will, listen, separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats in those days, I guess, and even still today, sometimes it's not always easy to tell the difference between a sheep and a goat. And they would intermingle and they would flock together. But then at the end of the day, the shepherd would be there to separate them out. And Jesus is saying that in our world, every, every person you come across is, belongs to two, one of two groups. And at the end will be separated, sheep or goats, sheep or goats. And, um, and so this is the teaching. This is what we say in our creed, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, that there will be a final day. And it's not always hard, it's not always easy to believe that or or at least to live with a lively sense that there is going to come a final day because we live in time. We're like uh, the the fish live in water, we live in time. This is our experience of of the world and of time. It just keeps unfolding. And Jesus said this how long ago? Over 2,000 years ago. And the the decades and the centuries and the millennia have, have rolled on. And it seems like, from our experience, time is is infinite and endless. But I want you to remember what the Apostle Peter said in Second Peter to the church. He said, a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. God's relationship to time is different from our relationship to time. So time is, is ticking away from our experience and it seems like the, you know because this is how we live that the clock will just keep on ticking and Jesus says, no, there's coming a day when that clock is going to stop and there'll be a final day i was reading something a couple weeks ago in the national geographic about black holes some of you know this already the science nerds among us know this but if if you were to travel to a black hole to the threshold of a black hole according to this article this is kind of a mind bender here but i'm going to read this so i get it right if you travel to a black hole for every minute you spend there a thousand years will pass on earth an amazing thought because of the theory of relativity and the gravity and time, and I don't understand all of it and pretend to understand all of it. But science has shown that our experience of time is limited and, and relative, and it may feel like time is infinite, that it's going to march on forever. But Jesus says, No, it's going to stop. There's going to be a final day, and it's going to be a day of judgment. So then we come to the question what will be judged upon? What will Christ base his judgment on? And it's it's very clear that Jesus will base his judgment on acts of compassion and service. People who have fed the hungry, clothed the naked, visited the uh, prisoners and the sick, they will inherit the kingdom of Christ. That much is clear. But there is a real tricky part to this story. And uh, this might be a little bit different of an interpretation than what you've heard before uh, that I'm going to unpack here in just a minute. The tricky part of this passage and the really the interpretive crux of this passage is to ask this question in verse, uh, verse 40. Who are the least of these, my brothers? In verse 40. And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So that's the critical issue. Who are the least of these, my brothers? Now the common interpretation that you probably heard and I've grown up with and I've wrestled with this this week the common interpretation is that the least of these refers to anyone in need. Anyone that you come across is the least of these. And, of course, the great example of somebody who lived her life um, in accord with that understanding of this passage, and she's a great example of Christian charity, was Mother Teresa. And I've heard that as she took care of the sick and the dying, she would quote from Matthew 25 sometimes. And she would quote five words, and she would tick them off uh, with her fingers. You did this to me, as she was serving the dying, the sick, the poor, and the needy in India. So that interpretation has provided great motivation for Christians uh, to care for the least of these. And all throughout Scripture, God tells us to do that, to care for the needy. There's no question that Scripture calls the people of God to that. But then the question is, is that what Jesus is saying in Matthew 25? Are the least of these, my brother, and simply anyone we come into contact with? I think we can answer that question by looking at how Matthew uses those terms throughout the gospel. If you have a Bible, the Bibles are provided there in the pews. You might want to reach for one. I'd invite you, if you're intrigued by this at all, (laughs) to pick up a Bible and look at the actual text. So we'll look at Matthew uh, 12. First, how does Matthew in his gospel use the terms brothers and least of these or little ones? So Matthew 12, 46, while he was speaking, that is Jesus, to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are, this is the word, brothers, who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and here are my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In the Gospel of Matthew, brother means a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ. All right, then let's go to the end of Matthew 10. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is sending out his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples, to proclaim the kingdom of God throughout the village, to proclaim the kingdom in word and deed. And that's a risky mission, of course. And um, they're subjected to persecution and ridicule and difficulty. But he says at the end of that passage to encourage them in mission in uh, verse 42. This is Matthew 10, 42. And whoever gives one of these little ones, equivalent to least of these, even a cup of cold water, because he is my disciple. Giving the cup of cold water to the disciple, I say to you truly, he will by no means lose his reward. So I believe that what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 25 is that Christ is going to come again to judge the nations by how they have treated his disciples, by how they have treated his followers. These disciples were weak, they were poor, they were subjected to persecution, and if somebody were to offer them hospitality, food, clothing, shelter, and taking care of them, then in that culture, that would be a sign that they have accepted them. And to accept the disciples would be to accept the one who sent them. That's another kind of Jewish cultural principle, to accept the messenger is to accept the message so the Christian nations will be judged or the the nations as a whole the nations of the world will be judged by how they treat the poor the hungry and the persecuted followers of Jesus Christ that's how I read that passage I know that's different from how many of us do I've wrestled with it this week you don't have to agree with my interpretation um, but let me just put it even more clearly Someone put it like this, this text is not so much about Christ judging the church for how it treats the poor of the world. It's telling us that Christ will judge the world for how it treats the poor of the church at the end of time. Now, the problem with this is that, are you saying, Ben, that the church doesn't have a responsibility to the poor of the world? No, I'm not saying that at all. That's clear all throughout Scripture. That's clear in the minor prophets. I mean, over and over again, the minor prophets are hammering the people of God because they're not taking care of the needy, the poor, the sick. They're not concerned about justice. They're trampling the the oppressed down. And so God calls them through the uh, Old Testament always to take care of the poor and the needy. Jesus' story of the Good Samaritan is the story of helping your neighbor who is, is not necessarily one of your group. But he calls us to do that in the story of the Good Samaritan. Paul the Apostle in Galatians 6.10 says this. Listen to what Paul says. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. Not just Christians, but to everyone. And then he goes on and says, especially those who are of the household of faith. So please hear me. I'm not saying we as Christians don't have a responsibility to take care of the poor and the needy and the oppressed of the world. I'm just saying I don't think that that's what this particular text is saying here. Rather that Jesus is saying there's coming a day when all the nations are going to be judged by how they have treated his disciples, his followers, especially the weakest among them. I think this teaching is very relevant today as we look at what's happening to poor Christians in the Middle East, in Iraq, in Syria, in Nigeria. We look at the The suffering, we look and hear these stories of beheadings and crucifixions and in Nigeria, how little girls have been taken into slavery, and we look at this and we say, God, how long? Is there going to be a day of reckoning? Is there any justice? And this text is teaching, yes, there is going to come a day where God's justice is going to be satisfied and fulfilled. And I think this passage also challenges us to examine our lives Is love, especially love for brothers and sisters in Christ, is that a mark of our life? To show love to another believer is evidence that you belong to Jesus. And that's a clear teaching throughout the scriptures. Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. How do I know I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ? Do I love his people? do I sense unity with his people. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then the Apostle John writes in his letter, in 1 John, of course, about love and love being the the litmus test of uh, of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let me just read you here what, uh, what he says. First John chapter 4, again, if you want to look at this in your Bible, I think this will be helpful to just put your eyes on the, on the Scripture here. Beloved, this is 1 John uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not love, know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, which is the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So here you have in 1 John, in this passage, you have the command, love one another, and you have the motivation because God has loved you, God has shown love in this way to you at the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ. And then you have this as a clear indication that you belong to Christ if you love His people. So love is the evidence, the, the fruit of a life that understands I've been forgiven by God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Love that expresses itself in acts of mercy and compassion. And, of course, God gives us plenty of opportunities in the church to express this love to one another. And God is so good that he stretches us and grows us in this love by sending difficult people our way sometimes. (laughs) You know, the church is full of people, a bishop told me this once, the church is full of people who are EGRs, Extra Grace Required. Extra grace required. Sometimes I'm an EGR. All of us, I think, at different times can be that. And and what that means is that God is sending people in our life and situations in our life so that we can go to him and ask for more grace, go back to the cross and recognize where we have fallen short in living a life of love towards other people. And he grows us up in this way. You know, I love it when I hear my kids say to me, I love you, Dad. I really love it when they're little. That's when it's most precious, isn't it? When they're two or three, the, a couple of weeks ago, Lydia was in bed with me. I was laying down with her, getting, trying to get her to bed. And this little voice, is the first time she said this, I love you, Daddy. <laughs> that's precious. Love to hear that. But I love it even more when I begin to see them grow and show that love in their obedience to their parents, that's a good thing, but in the way they serve one another in the home. And that is showing me that they're maturing in this love by actually demonstrating it. And when I see people in our church loving one another, visiting the sick literally in the hospital, or, or coming to me and saying, Father Ben, I know this family is going through a difficult time. I'd like you to pass this money on to them. It happens quite often in this church. That is so encouraging because that's a sign of genuine Christian love at work in our midst, in our community. And Jesus says, if you've done it unto the least of these, the least of these my brothers, you've done it to me. So there's going to be this time, I think, and this is the picture that Jesus is saying here on Judgment Day when, when you'll get before Christ and, and he'll say, you've served me in this way and that way, and, and you've you fed me and you took care of me, and, and, and you'll say, when did I do that? Because it was a spontaneous act of love flowing through you, through the work of the Spirit of God. And he'll say, as as you've done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me, my brother. And, um, of course, that applies not just at the local level, but the global level as well. We have brothers and sisters who are suffering for the cause of Christ that we need to remember. So how should we measure our life? How will God measure our life? Very simple. Love. This isn't the whole thing that the Bible has to say on judgment. But this is an important thing. The great measurement, the great test of our faith is love. Acts of love, service, compassion to other people, especially to His people. As we show love to Him, it shows, as we show love to them, it shows that we love Him, our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray.